mid-November. So just a reminder, we'll be taking a two-part series in November, uh, looking at what it means for us, kind of some vision around our church of uh, what uh, God's laid on our heart of what it means to be a church for this city, uh, what it means for us to reach uh, our area locally where God's planted us. Uh, But then also another week on what it means for us to reach unreached people groups. So God's heart is for the nations. Our heart, we should be for the nations. And what does it look like for you as a member of this church and as a follower of Jesus? And so that's two weeks. And then we'll start uh, the last Sunday in November, uh, look at Advent. And so if you've not been around the church, like what in the world is Advent? And Latin is just, uh, uh, Advent is a Latin word that just means coming. It's where we celebrate the coming of Jesus. We join with the church historic uh, all over the world to look at um, the coming of Jesus in his, in his birth. And it, we anticipate his soon uh, return. So that'll lead us up to Christmas time, uh, kind of preparing our hearts for uh, Christmas and all that that means for us as, as believers and what it means for the world. This is where we're headed, but we're in First Timothy uh, today. So you, we've been taking Timothy kind of at bite-sized chunks, kind of taking huge uh, kind of surveys. Like last week, we tried to cover a whole chapter. Uh, and then this Sunday, we're kind of hitting the brakes a little bit, and we're looking at two verses uh, today because uh, we were intentionally going to look at some other parts of chapter 5, and I'm going to push that to next week just because in our prep, uh, those two verses that you heard Evan read uh, earlier just really uh, landed on me, and I think that it's... Um, really a timely word for us as the people of God, and particularly what it means for us here at Tri-Cities Baptist Church. I think this is something, if I'm entirely honest about it, that we're not very good at as a church. Uh, What we're going to talk about today is not necessarily normal uh, for an experience in the church for this topic that we're talking about today to be done well. Uh, And I think that it's maybe the reason we're not so hot at it in the church, not just trust cities. I think it's probably a church in the West that this is one of the weak links uh, for us as a a body of Christ. But I think that kind of spills over into our culture. We're going to talk about that uh, because this is just so foreign in our in our day and age today. Um, So it's on confronting sin as a family. It's what we read uh, in the first two verses of chapter five It's where we'll be. Uh, today. Before we jump into unpacking uh, what God has to say to us in those two verses, I want us to read the words of Jesus in John 13 that I think uh, sets the stage uh, and the tone of this conversation for us today. Uh, So John 13, you can either turn there. I think the words will be up on the screen behind me. But John 13 verse 34 says this. This is the words of Jesus. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. All right. And here's what that love should look like. So it's not just, we can't define what that means. We have to understand what Jesus is going to mean when he says for you as a body of Christ, as a follower of Jesus, to love one another. So before we move on, Jesus is saying that into your life right now. He says, I command you to love. So, I mean, we got to wrestle with that. So am I loving people? What does that mean? Am I doing it well? How do I be better at loving people? We've got to at least wrestle with that. And I think some of us on spiritual maturity continuum, we may do better or worse at this, but we can't just read that as an idea or just a doctrine. And I can, I mean, we read that and you're like, oh yeah, Jesus said love one another, of course. But what does that mean? And, and apply that to your life and apply that to this corporate family of faith. Is this something that we're living out? Is this something that would characterize last week for you? All right, so we're not just going to fly past this. We're going to look into it. Love one another. How, Jesus? What is it going to look like? He goes on. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
So he upped the ante a little bit. So it's not love, however we might define love. It's kind of loosey-goosey and not really love at all. He goes, your love should be consistent and flow from my love for you. And so how did Jesus love you? I mean, when you were at your worst, when you didn't deserve it, apart from anything you've done, even when you were rebelling against him, we were the ones that were responsible for the death of Christ. I mean, I know he was brutally murdered by people 2,000 years ago, but if we would have been in the crowd, we would have been yelling, crucify him just as much as they were. And yet we see the love of Jesus that he is dying for the people who have rejected him. And he says, and this is love. God's love is demonstrated in this, that I would lay down my life for you and save you from your sins so that you could be with me. You were the one that broke it. You never could fix it. And I was, had every right to make you pay for eternity under my wrath because I'm just and that would have been perfectly acceptable. But instead, I became a man. I walked among you. I lived the life that you all messed up and I died in your place. So get this. Somebody will pay for your sin. So what is sin? I haven't loved God with all my heart and I haven't loved my neighbor as I love myself. And we've all turned inward. We've loved ourselves more than we love God. We haven't loved one another. And yet Jesus said, I'm going to take your place so that you won't have to spend eternity apart from me in hell paying for that sin. I will pay for your sin if you will put faith in me. That I am who I say I am and I've done what I say I will do. That's the gospel. That we can be restored, have forgiveness of sins, and now love God. Why, church? Because he first loved us. He says, oh, okay. Now, if in light of that message, in light of that I love you in that way, you love people that way. You love people empowered by that message. You love people consistent with that message. That the way we lay down our lives for one another ought to be in parallel and a shadow and an echo of the way he has laid down his life for us. That we can never be empowered. This is not just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and try really hard to love people who are unlovely. He says, no, be changed by this gospel of God's love so that then you are compelled to love one another. That's what it says. I mean, he says, just as I've loved you, you are to love one another. And here's what's at stake if we don't. And here's, that's kind of the negative way to look at this. Here's the positive bent to this. Here is the beauty of when we do. He says, verse 35, by this, namely by our love for one another that's consistent with his love for us, all people, all people, we talk about mission all the time. Look at this. All people will know that you are my followers. If you have love one for another. So it's this mission. It's this apologetic that we say all the time. It's the community apologetic. One of the best ways that we defend our faith. There's other ways that we defend our faith. But one of the most compelling ways that we defend that this is real. The gospel is not a fairy tale. Following Jesus is not just some religious activity that we do. It really is reality that we are inviting the world into Jesus' love. And it's one of the greatest things that we can say, hey, this is not a fairy tale. It's not make-believe. Is that when the outside world that has not experienced the love of the Father for them, and they have this understanding of a workspace salvation and fear and guilt and not really believing what's true about God, when they look at you, church, he says, not just the church at Shar Cities, but it includes us. When they look at the way that we love one another, it will say something about God to where they could know that we are true, genuine followers because this message is not just intellectual. It's not just something that we bark at people, that we are really embodying this love 
that he's invited us to, this community of faith, that they can experience the love of the Father by seeing our love for one another and hearing the gospel and believing it and being saved, to then experience the love of the Father and invited into this. This is what we do. But yet, you look at the landscape of, um, I don't know if you ever have conversations with people who don't know Jesus, but like, I'm telling you, especially in this area, one of the biggest obstacles to people coming to faith, and in some levels, I think that's an excuse because I think the Bible tells us that the reason we don't want to believe God is because we don't want to believe God, right? Like we have suppressed the truth, the Bible says, and everybody's accountable. They can't blame shift other people. So if you're here today and you're not believing Jesus, like at the end of the day, you've got to ask yourself, why am I not believing Jesus? I can't blame anybody else like i've got to wrestle with who do i say that jesus is but yet we've got to have a sense of humility to say when people look into the church by and large this is not true across the board but in many cases unbelievers have seen the way churches have divided and the way that we have no love for one another and the way that we're so toxic rather than having unity and they say if that's christianity I want nothing to do with it. And I think it's the adverse of what we see in Jesus' life, that the church has lost in many ways her witness of the beauty of the gospel and of, and of Jesus Christ. And they're looking at us and saying, and I've talked to so many people, that's probably the biggest reason. As I've tried to interact with folks in our city, maybe you would say I've heard different things, but I've heard, I can't believe this, or I, don't, I was in church and I left church, or I don't want anything to do with church because Look at all of the hypocrites and look at all of the church and what it's done and how corrupt it is. And they can't even hear in some ways the gospel of Jesus and his love and his grace and his restoration and his call to repentance because it's clouded and has to be seen through the lens of bad experiences with the people that claim the name of Jesus. And so, man, there's something at stake here for the mission. There's something at stake here for our lives and community. This is the command of Jesus. He says, love one another as I've loved you. And then people will see that love and will experience uh, my love. So what does this look like in action? What is Christian love? What does that mean? Uh, I could sing you the song, like, what is love? But you don't want to do that. Uh, I'll have Melody come back up and do that. I'm going to take that away from you guys uh, down here so you won't make fun of me. What is love? What's it got to do with it? All you need is love. We've heard songs. We're all talking about it. What does it mean? What is it? And, it? and is Christian love what everybody in the culture says love is? And is there a, maybe a different perspective of when Jesus says this, to love one another, what if he doesn't just mean this cheap sentimentality of our culture of this feel-good, mere surface acceptance or, you know, celebrating individuality or whatever it is that we define love to be in our, in our day and age. What if Christian love stands in stark contrast to that and there's something deeper and more rich and true that I believe when experienced in a church community is why it shines so brightly in a dark culture is because everybody's wanting love and they're short-circuiting love and not seeing love for what it actually is and it's destructive and it's damaging and it's empty and it's hollow and so when the church has substance to their love it sticks out the light shines brighter in dark spaces and so we've got to figure this out so we've been talking about church as family that the kind of the theme verse for this series has been first timothy three fifteen. that paul says timothy the reason i'm writing to you homie he didn't say that. I said that. The reason I'm writing to you, um, son in the faith, was more <laughs> accurate to what Paul said. Um, he's so much more eloquent. Isn't it? The Holy Spirit knew what he was doing. Um, he says, I'm writing to you that you may know how to behave as the family of God. To know what it means to be brothers and sisters together and to have God as your father. It's important for us to understand that. And so just unhitch for a second and just think about personal dynamics of an earthly family. 
Uh, because a Christian family and the family of faith is so much more rich and vibrant and deeper than that. But I think there's some parallels. There's a reason God used that image to describe the church. So think about what it means to be a family. You have a common identity. You have to share a last name. You kind of associate it with one another. There's a common commitment to life together and you're operating together with house rules and stuff to make life flourish. There's time spent with one another. It can be hard to say that you're a close-knit family if you aren't close-knit and you're not together. Uh, so there's something about just day-to-day interactions that it changes the implications for what it means for us to be together. Uh, sharing of resources and life. So you're there together and you're sharing a home and meals and, you know, it's all, all together. Uh, but also part of what it means as a family, especially if it's a good family that's functioning well, because some of our families are broken uh, and you didn't experience this well, but in a good model of what God's designed a family is that discipline is not just a part, but a pretty crucial, essential part to a healthy family, right? Shake, shake your head if you agree with that statement or I'm just out in left field. Do you all agree? Okay, y'all are just looking at me like, what? But we're tracking together. Okay, that's good. Discipline is important. So you've all seen, you've been in Walmart or while you go to Walmart, Target, uh, and you've, it's okay if you go to Walmart, if you work at Walmart, good, uh, awesome. But you're in these public places and you see a parent that doesn't discipline their kids. Ooh, anybody had that? Um, and I'm going to say I'm a little more patient now that I have one, you know, because my son has been that kid before. So if you don't have kids, be patient with people in the stores that our kids are just going crazy but then you see like there's sometimes like they're like really like be a parent right discipline your kid like don't let that kid we all see that and we all something rails up in us like discipline is a good thing we don't like when we get a speeding ticket right this is out of a family context we don't like the consequences of our discipline for our actions but yet when somebody's like putting your family at risk, driving in and out of traffic. You're like, man, I wish that guy get pulled over. Ha ha. And you, have you ever done that? Somebody's slipped past you. And then like you've driven up two miles later and they've been pulled over by a cop. And the, just the validation you feel, you've seen them get pulled over. I may or may not have done that. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But I didn't apply that at that moment in my life. Um, there's something in us that loves and wants discipline, unless it's you seeing the flashing lights behind, right? Brother and sister, when they sin against you, you want mom and dad to stop them, make them pay. But it was you as the guilty one. You want a little bit of a mercy, right? So what I'm just trying to say is we kind of buck up a little bit to discipline and the idea of that, especially in our culture of how that should look in a family and all that. But yet it's pretty intricate. We would say society's not going to flourish. That home is not going to be vibrant if there's not some level of discipline, rules and expectations and correction and punishment for actions. And um, that, that is for flourishing. It's not bad. But yet we have such a a pushback against that in our day and age, especially when we're the guilty ones and that becomes directed to us. But if we're going to be the family of faith, and I think this is faithful to what Paul is saying to Timothy in these two verses in chapter 5, is that discipline is assumed here. So he's going to give correction of what that looks like, and he's actually going to say, hey, it matters how you do it. Don't just go and just start disciplining people because that's going to, because you're a sinful person, you're arrogant, you're prideful. So you've got to be careful how you go about it. But he doesn't say, hey, Timothy, in the church, you need to put things in order and actually discipline one another. Like he never says that. He just says, let me give you instructions of when you do it, how to do it. But I think in our culture, we read this, and I read it this week and go, where did he just take them out of nowhere? Like, where does this come from? Because it's so foreign to us that this would be part of what it means to be a family is that we are speaking truth into one another's life and confronting one another. Like that 
is so far removed from most of our experiences or ever seen it done well that we don't even know how to wrestle with this, to apply it to our lives. And then we would maybe say, okay, if he's saying to, to correct sin and to confront sin, how is that loving? Maybe that's a tension you're thinking. Like, you know, like, aren't we supposed to just love everybody and not just talk about sin all the time? So let me just unpack this a little bit of what he's saying to us here. So he says in chapter 1, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. And then he goes on and gives different uh, age demographics in the church and how you should relate to them. But that idea of rebuke and encourage, I think, applies to all those other categories, not just the first one of a father uh, and the older men as fathers. So what does this mean to rebuke and to encourage? And why does he say don't rebuke the older guy, but encourage? What does that mean? Well, rebuke in this language literally means to strike out. It's a, it's a picture of you're throwing a swing at somebody to correct, to sharply correct someone. And so he says, hey, somebody that's older than you, you should have a little bit of respect for them. So you shouldn't just sharply rebuke without any um, other balance in how you approach that. But he says you should encourage him. So does that just mean you don't say anything confrontational? You're just speaking little platitudes, you know, fortune cookie type things to him. And you're not like speaking truth. So don't speak truth to him. Don't correct sin. But you just encourage him. Speak positive things. Uh, that's not what this means at all. He said, hey, it matters your tone and your posture of your heart that you come to this person. But you are to encourage him. And encourage doesn't just mean speak niceties <laughs> to somebody. Here's what the word means. It literally means to invite, to comfort, uh, to exhort. And that word exhort literally means to beg, to implore. So it's to say, I, if I'm encouraging you, I'm begging you to obey or to follow something. I'm inviting you into something better. And I'm comforting you even because there's probably a gap in your life and what's true here that I'm going to come at you gently. But yet I'm pushing you <laughs> toward what is true. Not just going to sharply correct, but I'm going to invite you into life. And I'm going to beg you not to keep buying the lie of your sin, but I'm going to invite you into something better. Something really awesome uh, about this word of encouragement is the same word that God uses for himself when it refers to the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is our comforter, our encourager. Our, the, the Greek is... Um, well, I'm not going to try to say Greek because I mess it up. I'm from Appalachia and I can't say Greek words. But it's this idea of an encourager, a come alongside of, one who runs beside. So it even has the idea of you've ever run like a 5K race or something. You have like somebody that's just, you know, amped up beside you or the crowd beside you. It's that idea of I'm going to encourage you on to not quit and to pursue something of value. So I'm going to run from the sin, pursue holiness, but I'm going to equip, enable invite you, comfort you as you're on this journey. That's the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So he said, hey, as you are encouraging people in the church, you are joining sanctification at work. The Holy Spirit is our comforter, our encourager. And when we're doing this, we are being used of God in one another's life to make us more like Jesus. And so part of the Holy Spirit's work, listen, follow this line of, line of thought. Part of the Holy Spirit's work is not just to what we talked about this morning, to make us aware of God's unfathomable, unconditional love for us. That is gloriously true. You know the main way he does that? The Holy Spirit, is his main primary job description is pointing to Jesus. Point to Jesus. Look to Jesus. But in the middle of that, we see ourselves. And part of the Holy Spirit's job in your life is to convict of sin. 
to show you how you have rejected that love and to change you so that you can adequately receive the love of the Father. That's what he's doing in you right now if you are a child of God and a follower of Jesus. And that's what it means to be a Christian. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're not just saying do more, try harder. We're saying believe Jesus and the Holy Spirit is changing us to become what he's invited us into. And that's what he's doing in your life right now. That's what the work of the Holy Spirit is, is that he loves you, get this, and he encourages you primarily by showing you your sin and showing you Jesus. So if we're going to encourage one another in the church, our love for one another must include confrontation. If it doesn't, if our definition of love does not include confrontation, church, I think it's a fair statement to say we don't really understand love. If it's just this cheap kind of God's going to accept me however I am and there's grace so he's never dealing with my sin and for us in the church we encourage one another true encouragement true love so back to Jesus' words in John if we're going to really love one another that must include confrontation of sin discipline correction if we're going to be the family of faith it must include this mutual admonishment toward the things uh, of God so Mark Dever says it like this I, I love Dever on a lot of things, but especially this topic of church purity. Yeah, he's the best uh, in our day of it. He says this, a healthy church is not a church that's perfect without sin. Again, that's the goal that we all should strive for, man. We're not taking a lot of sin. We want to be holy, right? I mean, <laughs> do we not? I mean, we, want, we don't want sin in our lives. But it's a church that continually seeks to conform itself to God's word. And so what he's getting at in the context of this book that I pulled this from, he's saying that when we are confronting sin in one another's life, that we shouldn't expect necessarily perfection, but we should be striving for it. Our aim in our church here and our aim in our individual lives should be the holiness of God. Here's the reality. Ain't none of us gonna get there this side of glory, right? Like he's changing us and one day we will be free from the presence of sin. I can't wait for that day. But until that day, we're gonna be in process and it's gonna be messy, right? And in any church, there's going to be people who are spiritually mature, these spiritual fathers that are farther along. Not that they've licked sin in their life, but they've grown in maturity. They don't sin as immaturely as somebody as a baby would, but they're, they're growing. But then they've got issues in their life. The most spiritually mature person in this room still is battling sin. That never goes away. And then spiritually fathers and mothers. But then you've got the people over here that are baby Christians that have just met Jesus. And it's foolish for us as a church to think a healthy church will never have any issues, any mess. Because in some way, pastorally, I kind of want there to be a little bit of that, not for the sake of sin, but for the sake of us moving past it. Because that means we're reaching baby Christians, we're reaching people, we're reaching people that are trying to grow. The problem is, is when we stay there for long periods of time. But any church should have this continuum of maturity and sin and messiness. So listen, it is absolutely foolish and setting yourself up for failure and hurt in the church to expect to be a part of a family of God and never be hurt can I get a witness anybody no okay that's okay I'll be by myself it's fine um I know it's hard um because sinful messy people is going to hurt you and you're called to show that kind of patience to their process just as much as when you do something stupid and sinful to hurt somebody else you would expect that kind of patience and love and patience and process because we're all pursuing holiness by the grace of God, being perfected by the Spirit of God, and we're all in different parts of that journey. And for us to really covet in ourselves together, now we could isolate ourselves and be attenders to programs and events, but if we're really going to be a family, 
it's going to get messy. There's a Proverbs that says when there's many oxen in a stall, it gets dirty. Literally meaning like there's fecal matter. <laughs> we'll just use that term. When there's a bunch of animals. So, hey, if you don't want to clean up that junk, just don't have animals, right? But if you're going to have animals, you're going to have mess. So if you're going to have a bunch of people, there's going to be mess in the church. Um, and so that's not saying we just go, eh, we don't care about sin. We're all messy, so let's just be messy together. That's not what we mean. We're saying that in the midst of that, we are to enter into the mess, speaking the gospel to one another to actually change and committed to one another, to be this family of faith. So the big idea, I mean, I think it's clear, within a church family, brothers and sisters consistently and lovingly confront sin in one another's life. Consistently, lovingly confront sin in one another's life. So Proverbs 27, 5 says this. uh, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I was teaching this, our college students had a a retreat this week and I was teaching this and it just hit me so vividly trying to communicate that to our friends there of what this is actually saying. We don't put those first few words in chapter, or verse 6, together in sentences very often faithful wounds like uh, if you're really a friend if you're really engaging in community together really being a family of faith there should be some faithful wounds if you really love people faithful wounds but our culture says no if i really love that person i can't say that hard thing to them because i love them and what if they get mad at me and what if the relationship is hurt and what the bible's saying here is that's hidden love it's love that is pulled back Claiming to be love, but pulling back truth is not love. So it parallels in the Hebrew and says that open rebuke is rather than hidden love. Hidden love parallels, parallels with the kisses of an enemy. So you can think you're being a friend if you're withholding truth from them. But actually the Bible says, no, if you act that way, you're being an enemy. You're an enemy. And you're kissing, but it's like somebody that hates that person. It's against that person. So open rebuke, calling it out, bringing it into the light is actually what love is because that's the faithful wounds of a friend. That's what, and that's just some wisdom of Proverbs, but that just so flies in the face of everything about Western culture. Because <laughs> today, kind of the ethos of our America is if you disagree with me, you're against me, right? Isn't it? Like, if you don't see it through me, like, you have attacked me and slandered me, and on both sides of the political spectrum, this is not, it's both. And the rhetoric is so unhealthy right now. It's just crazy. Um, nuts. I'm turning off Facebook. I'm going to do something bad. Um, so it's like, it's nuts right now. But it stems from this idea of truth is relative. It's all about my experience, what's true for me. And so how dare you speak anything true in me because there's no objective reality by which I must submit to. If that, it's great if that's for you, but don't you dare come into my business telling me how to live, me what to do. And it's spilled over into the church. Is that we're good and encouragement is as long as it's convenient and as long as you're not really pushing up against my stuff. And we all have our stuff. Like some of us will rail against some sins in the church, but yet we kind of got our own sins, our private sins, more Christianized version of sin. And we may look at the church down the road or the person across the aisle or our spouse or somebody in our life group. And we are very quick to see their sin, but we haven't really seen how this is our sin. And it's just so unhealthy. So if we are trying to rebuke, we do it in all wrong ways and just really unhealthy. 
or we just avoid it entirely. And this is true of our family dynamics. So much of us in, in our families, we never have really dealt with conflict and sin really well. Some of us are the exploders. Anybody exploders in the room? Just be honest. Two of us, three of us, okay. I'm kind of an exploder, all right? Just be honest. Like when something doesn't go my way, I just lash out. And then you got some of us are the avoiders. How many of us are avoiders in the room? Look at my wife right now. So raise your hand, sweetheart. Um, all of us are avoiders in the room. Um, some of us are, uh, are stuffers. You know what a stuffer is? Kind of on this continuum. It's like I'm just going to stuff it down until one day it hits. You know, the exploder is like he's exploding all the time. But stuffer is kind of like the just one day I'm just going to really just fangs are coming out kind of thing. And then on this continuum, you've got the leakers. How many of you are leakers? Let me describe what that means because uh, that's kind of weird. Uh, <laughs> leakers means that I'm going to stuff it and I never really ever explode, but man, I'm just going to leak it out. It's the passive aggressive types. Anybody that way? Just going to say these little sarcastic little one-liners that just cut. And you're like, I was kidding, but were you kidding? Because man, you got some issues down deep in there. You're mad at me. I don't know where you are on that continuum. But that's different ways we deal with conflict, sin, and all of those probably aren't the healthiest <laughs> in the world. And so we bring that into the church and we say, either we're going to be the type when you offend me, man, I'm just going to tell you, I'm just... We're going to be some that just, man, you just stuff it and you get hurt and you never bring it out to the light. You just stuff it down. And one day, man, it just all blows up and it's a big issue. I see this a lot as a pastor, honestly, of people coming in after it's so progressed and so much hurt that at that point, it's just kind of hard to sift through it because you stuffed it for so long because you didn't want to, you thought that bringing it to light was going to be not good. And then you got people over here that just are those leakers that are just passive aggressive and they're never really honest with you. They just kind of keep themselves from you a little bit, and they'll just kind of jab at you just a little. And then you got some people that'll just avoid it, almost to the point where you just check out and never show up. Or you just really just put up a wall, or you just hide behind humor, (laughs) and you just avoid every piece of conversation. We bring that into the church. There's a better way to confront sin truthfully without exploding and being this person. to do so in these gentle, loving, unifying ways um, that gives God glory. Um, So I think the why we confront sin is pretty uh, obvious because God's commanded it. It's part of what it means to be the family of faith. It's true. Um, But I think it goes deeper. There's a reason why Paul did not have to tell Timothy to discipline the church. I think Timothy just got it. I think why is because the gospel. (laughs) I think Timothy got the gospel. Because the gospel is fundamentally redemptive confrontation. Think about that. Does God love you? Yes or no? Yes. Does God avoid your sin? No. So it doesn't have to be either or. The, The love and rebuke, love and confrontation, both collide in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God loves you so much that he's going to do whatever it takes to reconcile and fix this problem. He's not going to avoid it. But he does so by getting right in the middle of it. And for Jesus, not calling us to pay for it, but he takes it upon himself. But Tim Keller's big on this. He says, the gospel will show you that you're more sinful than you could ever imagine. And simultaneously that you're more loved than you could have ever hoped for. Both are true at the same time. But God is a God of discipline. So it's an aspect of the gospel. Look, notice 2 Samuel 7. The words will be up on the screen. And we're kind of landing the plane, okay? Just to give you a context of where we're at in this whole discourse here. Um, 1 Samuel seven fourteen says, I will be to him a father. This is speaking of 
in the kingly line with David and, and all his seed. And he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. So again, this is about a prophecy of the Davidic line and all that's going to happen there. But it says something about the heart and nature of God. Okay, so we can't necessarily apply this directly to our lives, but it does teach us something about God and about our sin. Is that when we sin, what happens? God disciplines. But yet that discipline does not mean God's love has departed from us. It's together. Job chapter 5, verse 17 says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. That's our word that we saw in 1 Timothy. Sharply correct. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. So it implies that God's going to discipline you. He's going to correct sin in your life. He loves you that much. For he wounds, listen, but he binds up. That word wound is parallel to what we saw in Proverbs, right? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. That is what God is going to do. He's not going to leave you in your sin because he loves you too much for that. So he's going to wound you that he might bind you up. He's going to shatter your pride and your ego and all of your self-reliance so that his hands can heal you. It's the work of God. And then Jeremiah 44, we see that he's doing that because we're guilty. It's not just because God's cranky or angry or hard to get along with. It's because of our sin is a direct rebellion against him. Look at Jeremiah 44, 4. Yet I persistently sent to you all of my servants, the prophets. This is God speaking. Oh, do not do this abomination that I hate. <laughs> Don't sin. But they did not listen. Or incline their ear to turn from their evil and make no offerings to other gods. Therefore, because I was gracious and gave them warnings and invited them into relationship with me, and they were so stubborn to go their own way, therefore my wrath and my anger were poured out. My discipline came out because they wouldn't turn from their sin. So God punishing sin is the most loving thing he can do. The most unloving thing he can do is because God to let us into that sin because that sin is going to destroy you. To keep you from him who you were created for. But then Titus would tell us that Jesus took our punishment so that we could put our sin to death in the context of community, in the context of family. Notice what these two verses say. They're beautiful. Who gave himself for us. This is about Jesus. To redeem us, to buy us back from all of our unlawlessness, all of our sin, and to purify for himself a people, a family, a church, um, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. The reason we put sin to death is that if you are part of the family of God, you should not want to continue in the things that break the heart of God. He's saved you from the lawlessness and purified you in the gospel so that you would be zealous to live a life consistent with your dad. Declare these things, he says to Titus. Exhort the same word of encourage, beg, plead, we saw in Timothy, and rebuke, sharply point out and clarify sin with all authority and let no one disregard you. So even in this day, Paul's going, don't let no one disregard you because even then there's going to be pushback against some kind of discipline and confrontation. And so we see that if you, we really get the gospel, it's fundamentally that he saved you from this lifestyle and into this lifestyle, and he's done everything necessary for you to live out this holiness that he's given to you positionally. But get this, this is in the context of family, of community. He didn't say you fight sin, put sin to death by yourself. He says, I did this to create a people. 
And these people are going to be this family that shows what it's like to live for God. And I'm going to walk this out together. Um, so we have to do this together. It's not just you deal with your sin, you deal with your sin. It's we are dealing with our sin together as the body of Christ. And so that's what he, after, so Second Timothy 4, I won't read it for the sake of time, but go back and read that, write that down. It's where he says, hey, hold tightly to sound doctrine, but to do so with patience and teaching. Because there's going to come a time when people don't want to listen to hard stuff, and you're going to have to endure that. But Timothy, have patience and teaching. Uh, so it's just like uh, my little boy, I've been using this illustration a lot, but I did it again this week, and I was prepared for this sermon, so it's in my mind. Uh, he's starting to, he's all mobile now, he's about to walk, he's real close, and he's everywhere right now it's crazy that's why i look tired um it's really it's really my wife like i'm I, like two hours a day i'm at home with him you know she's the one that look, is tired and actually discipline our son anyway um she's at home with him all day that's what i mean but he's starting to really get into stuff like big time and we're starting to like he understands what no is a little bit i'm having to kind of smack his hand and man it hurts so much to do that to him they always mom always said it to me it hurts me more than it hurts you i'm like whatever and it really does like it really does it hurts so bad but but then so I, i've heard somebody do this and i, I want to kind of create that into our rhythm after we've kind of disciplined him spanked him he's like losing his mind like dad i want the little thing on the wall and then i just pick him up and i hug him and whisper in his ear as he's like hitting me across the face. Like saying, I love you. I'm proud of you. Uh, and I'll discipline you because I love you. And he doesn't know what I'm saying. But one day he will. And I want that to kind of be so that, son, you can't do that. You can't. Dad, this is horrible. I love you. This discipline is for you. Even though you don't get it, it's for you. That's the tension of what God is doing for you right now. And get this, the main way he does that is through his people through us entering in to the mess with one another and confronting sin, and to do that um, holistically. Uh, I'll end with this, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, because I want to read this. I don't have time, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's important. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. I want to, uh, I want to read this to us. Judge not, because our culture takes this and makes it say stuff it doesn't say. Judge not that you be not judged. So there we go. We should never make judgments, ever. So Derek, everything you've said the last 40 minutes is just, Nothing. Well, let's keep going. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck, the little toothpick, the little splinter in your eye, or speck that is in your brother's eye, and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? What does it say next? Somebody help me. Okay. Uh, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's the log in your own? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Okay, what's that mean? Jesus is using an imagery. So think about, I had a little toothpick up here. I have a big two by four, you know? And how ridiculous it is to be so concerned with your speck when I got this big old piece of lumber sticking out of my eye. Like, you know, like it's almost kind of funny the way Jesus is using this picture. And he's saying, hey, listen, when you go in to rebuke people, to judge, he doesn't say don't judge. He says judge not. And then he like, gives instruction on how to judge. So he's clearly not saying never, ever make judgment against somebody, other people's sin. He's saying you need to do it the right way. There's a wrong way to judge. But you, before you judge and get the speck out of their eye that might exist, you need to have the posture of heart that sees that my sin is bigger than this person's sin. And I come at you with humility, not just, hey, I've got it all figured out, and I'm the Holy Spirit police coming in to make you holy. You know, like, 
That's not Christian confrontation. It's saying, no, I've got specks in my, and I get this log in my eye, and I'm going to do the work to, to hate my own sin. And listen, brother and sister, submit to you to help me overcome this sin. And when I do that, then I can see clearly to help you with your issues. Speak in. It doesn't say never judge. It says you better judge with a posture of humility and gentleness. That's what he's saying. So it's motivated by truth, not our opinion. Like Peter rebuked Jesus and was wrong. You know what I'm saying? Like he said, Jesus, you can't die. He goes, mm, get behind me, Satan. So all rebuke isn't good. But there is a rebuke motivated by the gospel, changing us, that empowers us to obedience. And that's why he says for the rest of it, you can look at it, is that we confront older men respectfully as spiritual fathers. There's examples. You can go on our app or on our website and get my notes. You can see some cross-references for this of how this plays out in Scripture. Um, but we confront older men respectfully. You don't go as a younger dude, and he's talking to this pastor here, and call out some old guy that's older than you, that's lived longer than you. He actually might have sin in your life, but it matters how you do that. You do it as you would a father, gently, respectfully, honoring them. Then he says we confront older women in gentleness as spiritual mothers. Same idea, that we're not just confronting and speaking truth. We do it with respect. We confront younger men in humility as spiritual brothers. And then younger women in purity as spiritual sisters. So what he's saying is, listen, if you're talking to people uh, younger than you, don't talk down to them. Talk to them as equals because you actually are. Brothers and sisters, they don't have hierarchy and standards, although you think you do, older brothers and all that. But like, you're just kids. You're no more your father's and mother's child because you're older or younger or just whatever. You're just equal. And so when we confront younger women and younger men, we do so with humility and with respect and just understanding this could be me. (laughs) No superiority there. And when you confront older people in the church that have lived longer than you, it doesn't say you can't speak into their life. It's just saying you need to do it respectfully. That there's rhythms of how this works. But but it never gives us an out that we can't do it. We shouldn't do it. We must confront one another if we truly are loving one another and becoming all that God's called us to be. So I'm going to invite us uh, to pray, and we're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper now, uh, which is so timely that, uh, to do this together. But I invite uh, not only our worship team, but also those who are going to serve the Lord's Supper to make their way on up to the tables now um, and go ahead and grab the elements because we'll be uh, transitioning pretty quickly here. Uh, but I invite everybody else to just... Uh, bow your head, close your eyes, and remove distractions from all the moving people around you. Don't worry about them, okay? Uh, we'll get out for lunch by 1230, so we're good. Uh, so let's, let's focus in on what God wants to say to us uh, here, all right? So I want to ask some questions to us. Do you truly love your brothers and sisters? And do you do that enough to lovingly confront sin in their lives? Is that a reality for you? And do you trust God's work through the church enough to respond to confrontation in ways that glorify God? Here's what I mean. Do you love people enough to speak into their life? Because if you truly love someone, you will tell them of the danger of the folly of their sin. To not do that is to not love them. So I'm praying that God would do that in our church, that we would be that kind of community who cares for one another and our walks with Jesus. To be more committed to the people in this room their walk for Jesus just as much as you are your own walk with Jesus. So the question is, am I my brother's keeper? The answer biblically, yes. <laughs> yes, you are. Um, so what would that look like in your life if you really stepped out in obedience to God's word? But listen, when we begin to do that, 
Are you willing to receive that kind of correction from your brothers and sisters? What happens when someone comes to you and calls out sin in your life? Even if they don't do that necessarily gently and respectfully and humbly and purely, but they just do it in their sin, how do you respond? How do you respond to loving confrontation? It matters. Uh, And for us not to do that, the Bible says that if we continue to have this posture of I don't want to deal with my sin and nobody needs to call it my sin, it's saying something about our heart and our love for Jesus that if you really belong to Jesus, do you want to put your sin to death? Really? Because to say that I have this thing in my life that I don't want to let go of is showing that you might not be a Christian. Because a Christian is one who hates their sin and puts it to death progressively over time. Makes progress. So if you just have that attitude, I've really asked you, do you really, have you really received the grace of God in Christ? Do you know Him? Because a Christian is one who hates our sin and loves Jesus. And we invite you to come to Him. Be saved today. So we invite you not to come to the table to take of the Lord's Supper because it's reserved for those who are followers of Christ. We invite you to Jesus to repent of your sin and put faith in Him. He saved you from your sin. You don't have to pay for it anymore. He's taken your place. But for those of us who do, we, we show ourselves as we are reproved by one another that we show that we want to overcome our sin because that is consistent with the gospel. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper remembering that Jesus has taken your place. All of the sin that we need to be confronted of and to move on from, we don't move on from it to be loved by God. We move on from it because we have the love of God. That He's already paid for it. You don't have to pay for it. He did. And so when we take this bread and, and pinch it off, it represents the body of Christ that he took your place on the cross. And when we dip this bread into the cup of juice, it, the juice represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for the forgiveness of your sin. And the Bible says to do this as often as you do it in remembrance of Jesus. He took your place. Your sin has been atoned for. You are clean. You're spotless. You're made right. So therefore, live in light of this. Put your sin to death by the power of Jesus. So I invite us, we're going to sing this song, uh, How Deep the Father's Love. And I invite you just to sing it along as with our team here. As we make our lines up to the table, we've got four stations across the front here. Uh, I'd love you to grab the bread, dip it off, or rip it off and dip it into the cup. Come back to your seat and wait. Because I'll come back up after the end of How Deep the Father's Love, and we'll take it together uh, as a family of faith. Okay? Uh, but again, if you're here and you're not a member of our church, you're here visiting, if you are a follower of Christ, you're welcome to the table. But if you're not a follower of Christ, we'd ask that you not take uh, the Lord's Supper. But to spend this time listening to this song, thinking about the claims of Jesus and what he's done for you. And we'd love for you to repent and believe in the gospel right now. But I'd like to us all just to stand and continue in a posture of prayer, seeking our hearts, confessing our sin, and make our way up and receive the elements and come back to our seat.